I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, Agnes Rimston. How are you? Hello, Ben Horton. I'm well. How are you? I am very, very good. I am. I can't tell you how ready I am for Christmas. Good, because we're um, almost there. That is true. We've almost made it. Have you done all your Christmas shopping? I very nearly have, <gasps> but I can't reveal on this podcast who I haven't because they may well listen to the episode and know that I'm disorganised and chaotic. Mm. So or rather... you've just given it more thought than others. Okay, yeah, mm-hmm. I've just been mulling it, mulling it for longer. But how are you? Are you, are you pretty set? Uh, no, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, well, no, I've done I've done quite a lot. So, yeah, um, pretty excited about Paddington 2 being on the BBC this Christmas. That is Don't exciting. Know about you. That is exciting. And post-election. Post-election, yeah. New government, a new dawn. Everything's changed and everything feels pretty similar to how it felt yeah. before to me. Although I'm quite excited about seeing who all these new Tory MPs are because we don't know who they are. That's true. There are loads of them. That's true. Which is exciting. But who did you speak to this week? So this week I spoke to uh, Slava Vakachuk, who is a Ukrainian politician. He is the founder and leader of Holos, which is a new political movement, which I guess in the West we might think is, is somewhat similar to En Marche in some way, in that they've they've come into an existing political system and they've kind of disrupted it and said, actually, politics doesn't have to be done this way we're going to do politics in a different way. New political party, and in the Ukraine elections, the parliamentary elections this year, they gained 20 seats. So so we had a chat about Ukraine and the situation there and its relations with Russia and the EU and what needs to be done domestically, and it was just all round pretty cool. And I should have said at the very beginning of this that he used to be the lead singer of Ukraine's favourite rock band. Amazing. Quite I mean, a character. Ukraine is sort of going that way, isn't it? TV star. Yeah, TV star as president. Now you've got this rock star and thing, but I think that's a, that's a thing in politics, isn't it? Entertainment, and he's he's super interesting on that. Actually, one of the things that I enjoyed was he was saying, in order to sort of cut across and to cut through conventional politics and like entrenched opinions and stuff, what you have to have is you have to have basically brand awareness. I mean, that's what they're very good at is marketing. Yeah, and, and I mean, President Trump as well. No like, question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I personally am looking forward to our new prime minister in the future, James Bond. Or Ed Sheeran, who knows? We recorded a joint interview. We did. Awesome. What did we talk about? We spoke to Tom Raines, who is the head of the Europe programme here at Chatham House and a friend of the pod, Mm -hmm. uh, to talk about the election, but also what it might mean for foreign policy and where Britain sits in the future, because God knows. Big questions. And we should say we recorded this sort of five days after the election, six days after the election now, and uh, the dust is still very much settling. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah, so we tried to make sure that Tom didn't make too many predictions. <laughs> Although, interesting, don't, don't you think that there's been more of a focus on the uh, party that lost than the party that won? Absolutely. But yeah. maybe that's a subject for a New Year pod, Future of the Left. Uh, so, let's have a listen. So we're here with Tom Raines, the head of the Europe programme here at Chatham House, to talk about the election and what happens afterwards. Hello, hey. Tom. How you doing? Yeah, all right. You recovered all, all sleep deprivation induced by extended election coverage. 
Yes. Did you stay up all night? Uh, I stayed up until about sort of five. Mm. I saw Boris Johnson's speech. I saw Joe Swinson lose. Mm. And then I thought there were sort of diminishing returns at that point, And I was supposed to come into work. <laughs> so I, <don't> know. <laughs> I thought I was trying to sleep for three hours first. Yeah. Well, I suppose... What do you think then, Tom? Were there any surprises other than the, the big surprise? I suppose it was it was a very comprehensive victory for the Conservatives. And in a way, I, I suppose some of the, the optimism on the other side seems a little mis, misplaced retrospectively. It's sort of easy to say that, I suppose. But, you know, the polling leads have been pretty consistently strong for the Conservatives, obviously, people weren't sure exactly about the distributional effects of that, about turnout, about tactical voting, all these other factors, and basically none of them really uh, made that much of a difference beyond the, the kind of headline stories. I suppose the most important thing is that Brexit now is definitely going to happen. We've had this three-and-a-half-year period where every Brexit outcome has still seemed possible, right from, you know, a second referendum, a reversal of Brexit, a soft Brexit, you know, EEA membership, whatever it might be. Um, but that notion that Brexit could not happen was always there. And I think that was something for that was still significant on the EU side. It was certainly very significant to the psychology of, of British politics, I think. And Brexit is now definitely going to happen. And the debate now needs to shift in a way that didn't happen at all in the election. This is one of the, the frustrations that I had to what the nature of the future relationship should be. It's quite extraordinary that the Boris Johnson secured this deal and just getting a deal was was all that was required in a way to to sell this. Uh, there was no real debate about what that deal meant, about what it would mean over the longer term for for customs, for manufacturing, for services, you know, beyond the the non-trade stuff too. So um, that's the debate I think that needs to happen now, which is basically a discussion about convergence and divergence. How far away do we move from the EU and what are the economic and political implications of that? Mm-hmm. And do you think that um, Johnson is going to be the person who's going to be leading those negotiations, what our relationship looks is going to look like with the EU in the future? Or is it going to be rub or trade? You know, is he going to take the lead on this, do you think? It seems, I mean, I, th- I think it's a little hard to tell at this point, but but I would imagine he, he doesn't seem like a person whose role is to focus particularly on detail. He's there, but I imagine number 10 would be very closely involved. I mean, in a way, that's what happened under Theresa May too, that it became a very centralised process. There are big plans to sort of shake up the machinery of government. So some of it might depend a little bit on, on sort of rejigged, ministerial portfolios and how all that comes out. But it's too big and too important a thing to not be led and directed from the centre of government, I think. I guess there's, there's, you know, I would imagine that Boris Johnson wouldn't be that involved for, for quite a while because, and, and in fact, he may want this, which is to make Brexit more of a kind of technical, legal details discussion and say, look, we've left, we're working on a great future relationship and make it something that isn't on the front pages of every newspaper anymore. We won't have the theatre of a hung parliament. We won't have the sort of day-to-day drama. It will be about sort of complex negotiations in lots of different areas. So it may sort of slide back down the political agenda, uh, which might mean that Boris is sort of less less focused on it himself too. Just going back to the, the election campaign itself, do you think that it was, as some people have claimed, very much a Brexit election? You've got the Labour leadership, Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell, sort of saying that they had a great set of policies, everyone agreed with the policies, but the problem was the people wanted to get Brexit done. And 
the Labour Party couldn't cut through that that noise in a way. Do you think that was how it went? Do you think this was a Brexit election? I think it was a Brexit. I mean, I think it was indisputably a Brexit election in the sense that it has decided the fate of whether we're leaving yeah. the EU or not. Yeah. And that was still up for grabs, basically, yeah. if Labour had won or not won, but at least been able to form the next government, mm. then we would have a second referendum and everything would still be up in the air. So in that mm. sense, it was clearly was a Brexit election. There seems to be mixed evidence about how important Brexit was as a, a factor in, in particularly in that sort of in the decisive seats that moved away from Labour and to the Conservatives. Um, and it clearly was an important issue for plenty of voters, but it seems like a couple of other issues were equally or more important. Certainly, if you look at the group of voters who voted Labour in 2017, but leave in the 2016 referendum, and, and for, for that group of voters, issues of the um, perceived competence or attractiveness of the leadership of the Labour Party was obviously a, a huge factor too. And I think Labour did have a problem of having some appealing and eye-catching and quite transformational policy ideas, but not necessarily a coherent story and, and narrative to sell them. It seemed like too much and mm. too many things. And if one of your challenges anyway is about perceived economic credibility, competence, to then seemingly be offering everyone all things to all people based on a tax that 95% of people won't pay, I think that might have sort of stretched credibility for some for some voters. And in a way, I think the 2017 manifesto is probably a better balance in that sense, as in it had some, some big investment uh, proposals uh, and some good transformational policy ideas, but didn't have quite the sort of same sort of too you know like a christmas tree with too many decorations on basically so i think that was that was the other factor that that labor struggled with you know clearly there's there's a kind of bit of a civil war now in the party about who was to blame for this loss what to try and sustain from from corbynism and from the from the kind of movement that's transformed the composition and direction of the Labour Party over the last um, four years. And it does seem that I think it would be dangerous, ultimately, for the Labour Party to think that all of their problems are related to their inability to get Remainers and, and Leavers to agree. And I think, you know, the Labour Party had problems before Brexit became an issue. We don't need to go back to the 2015 general election, but obviously, you know, Labour hasn't won a general election decisively for a long time. So there are deeper there are deeper challenges. And I think also, you know, I think there was a, a sort of competence challenge with the leadership, you know, mm. in terms of the personal performance of Jeremy Corbyn, which I don't think was particularly strong. He has incredibly poor personal ratings. That's one of the major things that's changed since 2017, actually. You know, politics is sometimes a comparative judgment and up against Theresa May, who obviously had a terrible 2017 general election campaign and was pretty unpopular then yeah. Corbyn was sort of competitive but up against Johnson who's a sort of Teflon political figure who seems to you know even if he's not loved by everyone he his sort of net figures were, were, were much better than Corbyn's. If we can put Brexit aside for a moment what does Johnson's foreign policy look like? Uh, I think it's a, it's a really interesting question I, I, wrote, I wrote a piece before the election which was trying to think through some of the issues uh, and how a sort of Labour or Conservative government might look at them but basically making the argument that foreign policy was was almost a partisan political issue in a way that it, it hasn't been for most of the kind of post-Cold War period in the UK where I think there was a sort of broad consensus around a set of assumptions about Britain's role in the world to use that dreaded phrase um, 
about security policy, about defence policy. It included membership of NATO, for the most part included membership of the EU as a kind of multiplier of Britain's influence abroad. It was kind of broadly pro-free trade and liberal with a small L. Uh, It was pretty supportive of kind of the institutions of economic globalisation. And that really seemed to kind of fray and break down. And in a way, Corbyn personally represented something that was a sort of rebuke in many ways to the last 30 years of British and American foreign policy. It was a very different worldview in a way that I think was quite distinctive, even from, say, you know, the differences that Ed Miliband had with David Cameron over intervention in Syria. And in a way, I think that was sort of aspects of that were very welcome because I think ultimately there have been plenty of failures and mistakes and very costly ones in the way, in Britain's foreign policy over the last 30 years. And I think there is a sort of sense of drift I think it's perfectly reasonable for people um, to ask, you know, what is the role of NATO as an organisation created in the post-war period to counter particularly the threat of the Soviet Union? What is its kind of modern day role and, and legitimacy? However, I think Jeremy Corbyn sort of combined that with some difficult personal baggage about his own connections and I think some basically some flawed judgment on quite on a on a few issues which I think held him back. So in terms of what 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 Johnson might look like in foreign policy terms, well he's been you know he's been foreign secretary and he was actually relatively conventional in that role. There was a lot of worry after Trump was elected that somehow Britain would drift away from the the positions it had held in common with uh, the EU in several areas on climate change or on the Iran deal or on relations with Russia, etc. And actually, the UK has been pretty consistently holding that line. I think the the big issue for me that, that will be distinctive is when we leave the EU, certainly under the Johnson vision, is we will have an independent trade policy. And I think there are some interesting questions about how that might influence and affect the UK's foreign policy towards emerging powers in the Gulf, China, countries with whom we would like to have deeper economic relations and what the sort of potential political trade-offs and uh, that might involve. And I think some of those questions are, uh, haven't, we're only sort of really beginning to, to debate those. It's interesting, certainly there are some people around Johnson, so there's a professor uh, from King's College London, John Bew, who's gone to work in number 10 before the election, who are interested in this, in, in basically the UK having a sort of a grand strategy, an idea of what Britain's kind of orientation and role in the world is. So I think there will be, over the next few months, some quite serious thinking, hopefully, in number 10 about if you're a country the size of Britain, you've decided to leave the political and economic block that you've been part of for 45 years. You're facing a relatively malign security environment, competition between the US and China, and you've just got this new power to, to negotiate your own trade policy, just as you know, global trade is sort of going in, in reverse. How do, you, how do you try and kind of promote your interests and sustain your influence in that world? And I think there's a lot of difficult questions there. Mm. Is there an institutional angle to that question as well? In, in reports this week, there was this announcement that they intend to merge the Department for International Development and the Foreign Office. Is that partly an answer to sort of reassessing the UK's foreign policy goals? What impact do you think that would have if it happened? I I think there are legitimate questions about how do you organise yourselves or how do you, you know, how does the UK government organise itself to make make it particularly effective and to connect the different instruments of power and influence, basically? In a way, I'm I'm always pretty sceptical about the capacity of of sort of changing things in Whitehall and merging or demerging 
departments to really transform things. Most of the time it consumes a lot of energy and time from civil servants mm. to create new email addresses and new branding <laughs> and all the other bits well, and pieces. And it is a statement, isn't it? I mean, from the government itself. So if you know, this new Department of Borders and Immigration is created. That's quite a statement from this government about where a priority is and where they think the Home Office is not succeeding. So I, I agree with you, but just the idea of doing it says something. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in, in a way, this is the, the frustration I have with it because I think that's a bad way to show that you care about an issue. Mm. Labour did it in a similar way to create a, a separate department for, for, for energy and climate change as a way of demonstrating the significance of climate change. I just think that there has to be a, a broader logic beyond that in order to, to sort of justify it. I think it's interesting with DFID because that is actually another issue which has been a, a slightly um, partisan one historically, and it was originally created as a separate ministry by a Labour government and has sort of gone back into the hands of the Foreign Office at various points under Conservative governments up until Cameron 2010. when it And that was sort of part of... Cameron rebranding the uh, the Conservative Party that to be sort of more modern and dynamic and be kind of totally on board with international aid. I guess that there are, you know, DFID has a very good international reputation on the issues that it works on. Um, it does pretty well in terms of how, how it manages and, and spends money. And that would be a huge challenge, I think, for the Foreign Office, which has a budget which is an eighth the size of of DFID. But I do think there are, you know, it's worth asking questions about how do you put together the different tools of Britain's kind of international footprint in a way that that has the greatest effect. I'm just not sure that politicising development is the right way to go about doing that. Johnson has in the past um, said some quite controversial or fruity things uh, in his newspaper columns or in interviews about various countries. Do you think reputationally abroad he's liked or treated seriously? Does he have any allies abroad? You know, will those sort of comments get him in trouble? And is it slightly just because we've got Trump on the other side who's more of an extreme that he can be seen as not too tricky? It's pretty clear he had a poor reputation in Europe (laughs) and he was very associated with a campaign in the 2016 referendum, which a lot of other European leaders thought was driven by lies or was disingenuous or was, was and was basically kind of put in the same populist camp as, you know, s- some radical right-wing movements elsewhere in Europe and with mm-hmm. Trump. And it was sometimes sort of, I think, a little bit lazily all connected into one sort of single movement. I think ultimately, you know, he is, he's the prime minister of the United Kingdom and that still counts for something. So he, he'll still have to, he'll still be dealing on a level with all of these different world leaders. He seems to have struck up a good relationship with Leo Varadkar, for example, which I don't think I'd particularly expected and they had this <laughs> terrible press conference in, in Dublin and it all looked like a car crash and then there was this summit in the Wirral and, uh, which actually seemed to be the moment where there was this major breakthrough on, on, uh, on Brexit. Shout um, out to the Wirral, by the way. Yeah. Finally, Birkenhead as well, getting the recognition <laughs> Gets it deserves. moment on, on the podcast, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So, you know, I think it's pretty... It's going to be difficult for him, but he'll... he'll you know, this is... It was interesting. We had um, an event last week talking about some of these issues with with John Casson, who's a new associate fellow at Mount. He used to work in Number Ten uh, as a senior civil servant for David Cameron, and basically was talking about how important it is for the British Prime Minister to have good 
personal relations with world leaders and to invest time in that and to view that as one of their key contributions to Britain's international influence. His, his view was that, you know, basically most recent prime ministers haven't really thought that that was, that was a key part of their job. That wasn't something, you know, he was talking about how difficult it was to get calls in, in, in David Cameron's diary, etc. So I think what we need is a, is a prime minister who is really committed to making those, to, to seeing the value in those relationships and to building them over time. And, you know, it's going to, it's you know, Boris obviously has a certain charm mm-hmm. and and a, and a charisma with some people. Um, but and he's also On a got one-to-one to, basis, people tend to like him, actually. Yeah. Interestingly. Um, but he's also got to be able to be consistent and trustworthy and reliable when he deals with people too. Um, so I think, you know, he's going to have to invest in those relations to make them work. Could you tell us a bit more about how the EU has might respond to this election result as well, just to move away from a kind of UK focus? But do you think that um, they're going to welcome the kind of decisiveness that this brings or are they concerned about what this means for Brexit and general UK stance on Europe? I think, you know, in, in general, they will welcome the clarity of having a majority UK government that can do things because for a long time you know we had a government that couldn't pass laws in the House of Commons and the whole system became completely dysfunctional which was you know I think you know most Europeans followed this or, or you know a lot of European leaders were obviously following this very closely and the, the, the theatre of everything but you know now there is a much more capable in a way uh, interlocutor on the UK side so in that sense it's a, it's a good thing. I think there are justifiable concerns and scepticism about this, the, the timeline and the levels of ambition that the Johnson government has to negotiate and implement a new and ratify and then implement a new relationship with the EU by the end of next year. If I were them, I would I would be sort of bemused and frustrated that w- this government s- seems to want to repeat some of the things that didn't really work in the past. You know, the UK has you know johnson has already stated his intention that when it's in the conservative manifesto that he will not extend the transition period you know may set continually set arbitrary dates put them in uk law in a way that actually undermines the uk's negotiating flexibility and doesn't really strengthen its hand it's not really been any kind of attempt to manage public expectations about what brexit will mean that sort of necessary trade-offs that it will create in the economy and 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 more widely um so it feels a little bit like we're repeating some of the, the mistakes of the past but i think you know the, the eu side will will welcome some clarity they'll be they'll want to kind of get on with negotiating the second phase but they'll also know that they ultimately are have a stronger hand in this negotiation um you know they they have less to lose from from a more kind of chaotic outcome and um, particularly now the withdrawal agreement's been uh, agreed so if there's a you know no trade deal at the end of 2020 um, then i think that will be considerably less acrimonious than it would have been if we'd had a no deal situation before brexit with no settlement on, on financial issues no settlement on citizens rights so yeah i think they will welcome the clarity they'll want to you know they'll probably welcome the ambition and it's good to have a timeline it focuses minds but it's not good to box yourself in and it might be that in order to meet that deadline johnson basically has to agree to a lot what the eu is asking for is there an appointment that we should be looking out for that you think is going to be important that boris might make whether it's new head of the fco or an ambassador somewhere 
It'd be interesting to see who he appoints, appoints his ambassador to the US, yeah. but I assume that will go back to a senior diplomat who's appointed that role. I think um, I want to know who's actually going to, to manage and run the Brexit negotiations yeah. because ultimately that is going to involve a lot. There's loads more issues than the first phase and it involves bringing together the perspectives of all these different government departments who all want their issue to be the most important thing yeah. and somebody's going to have to make political trade-offs between those different issues into a comprehensive negotiating position and then make the trade-offs in those negotiations. And that is a big and challenging role that needs uh, strong political direction and leadership. And quite thankless, I imagine. Well, thanks very much, Tom. Thank you very Try much. Try and stay cheery, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> you sound so grateful, Agnes. Yeah. I'm thanks, so Tom, for, for bringing well, that. <laughs> at least now we won't be talking about you know every minor amendment to oh, to God. every kind of tiny bit of parliamentary procedure and the fate of the country seemingly hanging on on uh, the meaning of the word notwithstanding. So uh, we can move on from there. There we go. Positive <laughs> note. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And um, the article that Tom wrote last week before the election is on the Chatham House website now. And definitely worth a read okay so now i'm joined by slava varkachuk who is a ukrainian politician activist and renowned lead singer of the rock band okean elsi thank you so much for joining us today thank you very much a former member of the Ukrainian parliament, in 2019 you launched a new party called Holos, which translates as voice, I think. You uh, can translate it into English, uh, both like voice, but also vote. So in Ukrainian, okay. it's the same uh, word. Ah, oh, okay, interesting. So it has double meaning. Okay, and you recently contested the parliamentary elections in Ukraine and won 20 MPs. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank so you very much. Where did the idea for this political party come from and what were your experiences of the campaign? First of all, I'm not new to politics. I was working in, let's say, in the field of social activism, or civil activism for for many years. I had my charity foundation. I helped a lot. We did a lot of charity concerts. So if people know that I'm associated with politics for a long time. I was advocating different reforms, uh, even, you know, arguing with the previous president and all these things. I suddenly was an active participant of both Ukrainian revolutions, which we call revolutions, Orange Revolution 2004, and then uh, the Maidan, the, the Revolution of Dignity 2013, 2014. But I didn't want to go to politics that really. But when we saw the possibility of the window of opportunity that was opened by um, a newcomer of presidential elections, Zelensky, who actually changed the whole political landscape, we understood that it was the right time for people like us also to join political environment in country. And we formed a brand new party, which is called Holos. And our intention was, my intention personal, was to bring to power into politics as many as possible good, talented but also experienced in some fields and professional people. Mm. These are not just new people, but new people into politics, but not new in their own particular fields, in, uh, once again, civil activism and all this kind of thing. So we managed to bring some people. The result was probably not the best, but we're still there. We're in parliament, and, and, and now, little by little, we are trying to spread our wings. And so... 
what are the underlying principles of this of, of Holos? What what are your, uh, your platform? First, first of all, so there are five very 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 concrete items that we put as our platform. One is the the interests of of Ukrainians are above all. The second is the rule of law is foundational platform for us. Third is that economics free from oligarchs. The fourth is a sustainable government. And the fifth, and probably today, these days, the most important, that Ukraine is unambiguously and directly moving towards West, towards EU and NATO. And then we consider ourselves to be mostly right centrist. Uh, so we are not really up to like libertarian political doctrine, but also we believe in free economy and uh, we believe in in free economics, we believe in uh, competition, we believe certainly in rule of law. So we want to bring this kind of views into Ukrainian public, bring it on Ukrainian political table. And what are the kind of major challenges? I guess it kind of leads on from your policies, but what are the major challenges facing Ukraine as we sit here at the end of 2019 looking ahead? We have, we have actually two enemies. One is internal enemy and it's the weakness of Ukrainian institution, weakness of Ukrainian economy, still significant level of corruption, although it it's now less than it used to be, and many other things that actually undermine the stability of the country. But also external threat is, is Russia, who uh, started and orchestrated and suddenly is directing and even implementing uh, their aggression both in the east of Ukraine, in Donbass, and also in uh, Crimea, which which they annexed. So we have two threats, two enemies simultaneously, and we need to operate to fight two of them. We're here in London today at the end of a week which saw the NATO summit here mm-hmm. in London. I wondered whether you had any takeaways from that summit, whether you'd been following it, and, and how you think NATO fits into the picture of Ukrainian foreign policy. In my personal opinion, and that's also the opinion that's shared by my colleagues from party, and NATO today is, there's no alternative to NATO for us. So suddenly, Ukraine is a country with difficult geopolitical position. We have an, a neighbor whose political elite and whose leadership does not recognize the very existence of Ukraine as a nation, sovereign nation. And that's my belief. And suddenly, to live in such a hostile neighborhood, you need to take some precautions. And I think the best thing is North Atlantic Treaty, which is fundamental to preserve all European or Western values. In, in fact, we're talking about freedom, about dignity, about you know, freedom of speech, about free economics once again. So in my opinion, this is why NATO was made, to defend this. And... Uh, for us, it would be very natural to become a member of this club. We know, we understand that now there are objective obstacles in that path, but we are sure that one day uh, these obstacles uh, will be overcome and we will we'll join the family. So, obviously, your president, Zelensky, is similar to yourself in that you're both from the entertainment business, mm-hmm. I guess, prior to joining politics. Mm-hmm. I just wondered, do you think that we're living in an era where those two sectors kind of overlap a lot in terms of the skills that you need to have to be a successful politician and a successful entertainer. I understand what you're trying to say, 
what is more important today is the level of awareness. Right. So how people are aware of you, how well known you are. Mm -hmm. And I think this is much more important than the skills of being entertainer or somebody else. Understood. Because uh, nowadays the distance between the politician and their followers, the voters, has been decreased to like actually diminished to a very small level. Actually, you can shake literally by hand every of your voters. It's uh, the parties at the establishment becomes less important. And in order to make career, you don't need to climb on the ladder of party ladder as it was before. You just need to be a charismatic person mm. who people trust to. And, and very often these people come from entertainment because that's that's obvious. Either directly or indirectly. Directly you can see Zelensky or, for example, you can see, I think, the former mayor of Reykjavik from mm -hmm. Iceland. Yeah. Yeah, and some other people. Uh, there are some politicians in Italy as well. Mm -hmm. Like Beppe Grillo, oh, yeah. and uh, Donald Trump, of yeah, course. Yeah, but but also <laughs> indirectly, which is Donald Trump. Yeah. He 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 was not an entertainer. He got involved in this kind of business, and especially yeah. he became a TV host and all these kind of thing. He uh, wrote all these books, and so he was a uh, a media person, right? Yeah. So is yeah. this is important? Is this a good tendency? God knows only. I'm, <laughs> uh, I I wouldn't be very sure. Because yeah. actually, me personally, I lack this kind of good old politics when you had a lot of well-established and, uh, like say, deep people who could who had their strong ideology. And nowadays, you become politician uh, um, so quickly that you even don't are not prepared to have uh, to be a strong supporter of this or that ideology. Mm -hmm. There is a big danger of falling into the trap of fame dependency or, you know, like dependency. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and that's not about ideology. That's about doing the, what people appreciate or support most. And this is a very dangerous path. So I, I wish we come back to ideological beliefs and, and, and you know, values and principles that drive politicians. Do you think that voters in Ukraine agree with you? Because uh, something that I think is interesting to observe about mm. UK politics mm. at the moment is that there's a kind of perceived tiredness with established parties and established ideologies. I agree. Well. I agree with you. And uh, I also, I'm a new person in politics and then we are fighting against old ways of doing politics. Right. But uh, I'm not talking about, uh, when I say good old it's not those who were like five years ago or were just defeated in previous elections. I'm talking about like, like you know, people like uh, Thatcher or Churchill or De Gaulle or Reagan. Those people who, by the way, himself from for, was from entertainment. But those who were like, you know, who built up a strong uh, ideological base. And so you always were clear what these people were about. I mean... You know that there are some things they are strongly opposing or strongly standing for or standing by. And nowadays it's more, it's very vague. So what people like, that you're closer to the voters, which is great. Yeah. But this 24-7 um, process of negotiating or, I mean, um, 
interacting with your with the audience, with the constituency, and doesn't leave you a room and time for really thinking out real a lot of things and to prepare thoroughly and carefully some of your ideas. So you're react you're reactive. Yeah. Yeah. And this is very, very I think this is a bad sign of nowadays politics. So you're not proactive with your values or your principles, but you are reactive to the things that are happening every day. Hear yeah. that round yeah, yeah, about. Yeah. Another big trend that we're seeing in Western Europe is movements who are based a lot around specific identity. I just wondered, do you see Holos as a mm-hmm. movement that's involved with identity politics in that way? Depends what you mean by identity, because you can treat it very, like, you know, there's very broad interpretation of that. Do you have in mind appealing to voters who belong to a specific type of group? Is ethnicity a consideration mm-hmm. in, in the people that yeah. you're appealing to? That yeah, I understand. I believe in in values and in principles much more than about, let's say, your ancestry. Yeah. And I think that it's very important that we build our nation on political principles which unite people regardless of their, you know, color of skin or nationality or their, you know, religious belief yeah. uh, and, and other uh, issues as well. So I think it's important that we share the same way of life, the same values or the same principles. It's much more difficult to build nation based on, 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 on these issues because uh, the national identity usually uh, had been built during, you know, hundreds of years and suddenly it includes language, it includes traditions and it includes understanding who is close to you, who is somebody alien, uh, who is an alien. And it was, it was a great tool for fighting empires, yeah. you know. But today... I think we need to shift our focus on building political nations. Uh, but certainly, having said that, uh, we still need to remember that there's still no stronger market, uh, sorry, marker for even for a political nation than some, you know, traditional markers like like language, like uh, some traditions and habits which are shared by most of people. So. For example, like if we're talking about UK, a lot of people here, different nations from different continents, they have different views, but you're still kind of sharing some common things, like everybody speaks English, or uh, there are some generally accepted holidays, or there is some way of behavior in the families. And so this is something that works as a glue. Yes. And uh, you cannot throw it away or get rid of that. Because that's very dangerous. Uh, that's why I'm saying that uh, we support political nation, but we are not, in fact, that cosmopolitan. So we don't say that uh, you can bring a... You can, today it's very difficult to develop a cosmopolitan society from scratch. So, so you need to find a ba- ba- the balance, right? Yeah. I just wondered if we could turn to events next week where mm-hmm. yeah. we're going to be seeing this summit between mm-hmm. Ukraine, France, Germany and Russia. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Um, the Normandy summit, which is going to be discussing a lot of the issues you've been talking about. I just wondered if you were part of that meeting, mm-hmm. how would you be approaching the summit and how can you ensure that Ukraine gets its preferred peace as opposed to mm-hmm. Russia's preferred peace? Uh, first of all, I'm quite sceptical 
about impact of this uh, meeting. I understand the intentions of the president of Ukraine to make this meeting happen, political intentions and uh, personal, but I don't believe really in, in, in the impact of this meeting right now. And I wouldn't be pursuing the very the, even the possibility of making it happen just to see each other. So because I think that Ukrainian and Russian visions of the future of Donbass and of the, of the future of peace in Ukraine differ uh, dramatically. And uh, so there are only two options now. Either Ukraine will stand firmly and which I hope the president will do. And then the impact of this, political impact of this um, summit will be close to zero. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, why did you do it? Uh, and the other scenario, which I hope won't happen, is that Ukrainian president will be persuaded to accept at least some concessions that Ukraine needs to make in order to achieve peace. And these concessions may be, frankly speaking, decremental. Uh, and uh, What sort of concessions do you think? Yeah, I mean, I mean you, the problem is that both Minsk agreements, which will be discussed there and which is the only legitimate uh, floor now for negotiations, and some you know, additional formats, probably one-by-one -one meetings and on and, and other proposals there mm -hmm. will be circling around and will be all, all moving around the main idea. What is the fate of Donbass now? How Ukraine or, and will Ukraine incorporate it and how, under what conditions? And here is the trap because from one point of view, it is obvious that Ukraine will never accept any annexation or loss of any other territories to somebody else. So suddenly we're going to fight for every inch of our land. From other point of view, the strategy is important. Are you going to do it today and you're willing to do whatever they ask you to do in order just to get it back? I'm not sure that's a smart strategy because Donbass today after five years of Russian domination, of uh, propaganda, of all these fightings, is not the place that Ukraine can easily incorporate. Mm. And we are not that strong to be ready to do it, uh, especially when Russians will control it politically and even how it is uh, written in Minsk agreements, to some extent uh, even uh, military, because what Minsk agreements say, that the, the elections, uh, the they are starting to giving back control of Ukrainian border only the day of elections, which means that you are preparing the elections with foreign power controlling part of your territory, which is absurd per se. Yeah. And, uh, and there are these details which some listeners may find very difficult to understand, but unfortunately these small minor details will define the whole process of the future of Donbass and, and Crimea and Ukraine for, for probably next years. So you need to be very careful. Our proposal, Holos proposal, was probably very hard, but in my opinion, the only sound proposal, which is we need at least to freeze the solution 
probably not the conflict per se, but the solution before we can, we're ready to come with some new plan or with something that everybody agrees to, to accept or before Ukraine becomes economically stronger or because before we made, uh, we build a stronger country in the, within a territory we control now. And uh, I think that this, uh, by the way, this proposal or this point of view prevails in Ukraine. So the pl- plurality of Ukrainians think that this is a good idea. So probably up to 40% of Ukrainians, which is still not the majority, but there, but there is no majority, uh, but there is no plan which is supported by majority because also the quarter supports let's say, to fight till the end, which I think is not a realistic idea. And we don't, we're not ready to do it, at least now. And uh, another almost quarter supports this kind of Minsk format and uh, giving the special status, of uh, autonomic status to Donbass and then to live and to try to to saw, you know, Ukraine together. But it's only a quarter of population is ready to do it now because they understand that uh, the conditions will be very, very uh, unfavorable for Ukraine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so finally, looking ahead to next year, 2020, what is Ukraine's big opportunity in 2020 that you think Zelensky and the government should be seizing? You need to build institutions, you need to continue doing reforms, and you need to be firm not to give up any concessions to Russia in the question of Donbass and Crimea. And if you are successful in the first two, mm. I think it will be easier to do the third. Mm-hmm. And that's our plan. Uh, in order to achieve first two, you need to focus on building really strong coalition of reforms and make sure that nobody perceives their own personal political agenda. And sadly, you need to, to get support of Western partners both European countries and America and also international organizations like IMF or World Bank because they are really, their support is crucial now. So there's a lot of things that we need to do now, a lot of work. I'm optimistic in a longer term, in a longer run, but I'm, I still have a lot of questions talking about the, the short-term tactics and strategy. I'm, I have more questions than answers now. Let's hope some of those get answers uh, soon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. So, is that it from us for this year, Ben? That's it for this year. (sighs) We will see you in 2020. 2020. Go on, give us your prediction for 2020. Prediction on what? Anything. Some, something that's going to happen that people don't think is going to happen. Oh, uh, good question. Well, I hope that Labour elects a female leader. Nice. Uh, but I think people were predicting that anyway. Oh, uh, I don't know. Maybe we should make it something to look forward to. Hopefully. It's about time. Uh, what else? Well, it's going to be a good year for the people who produce novelty um, fun glasses who must have really missed out on the lack of double O's in the previous decade. Hey. I've been thinking about them. Um, <laughs> anyway, Think about it. It makes sense. Think about it, yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah, have a very happy Christmas, everybody, I suppose. Eat lots of cheese. And if you've missed any episodes of Undercurrents, download them. 
add them to the back catalogue and just put them on in the background. You know, at that point when granddad's gone to sleep and uh, your parents are washing up and everything and you've got nothing to do in the afternoon on Christmas Day, just listen to one of our episodes and, and tell us what you think about it. Last year's quiz is still there, even though it was too difficult, allegedly. Oh my gosh, yeah, last year's quiz. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for listening this year and interacting and if there's anything that you think we should be focusing more on or less on get in touch via twitter um ben is at ben horton 12 at ben r horton ben r horton because oh, you changed it because i wanted to sound more professional you know i didn't want to be seen as a russian bot i thought oh, let's get rid of all the numbers and just initial it fair enough and i'm at agnes for him uh so yeah send us your love hate Whatever, really. Preferably not too much hate. No. Um, Keep that to yourself. Cheese recommendations. (laughs) We're always up for it. Um, And we will see you in the new year. Absolutely. And in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents.